You got to love Red Skelton. He's my mom's favorite. Red Skelton, old Jimmy Stewart. Um, we lost some, some great gifts in those guys. Hey, if you have your outline in front of you, I want to gra- invite you to grab that. Hopefully you have your Bible or maybe your techno- technological device, your phone, your Android, your iPad. We're going to study God's Word for the next few minutes. And um, we've been in a series called Is There Hope for America? And today we close down that series as we start to look towards Thanksgiving and then we start looking towards Christmas. And I've enjoyed this series, I've enjoyed this journey with you, and as I begin today, I want to real quickly do a little bit of a recap, uh, but let me, let me just remind you, um, several of you uh, have missed a Sunday or missed a few, and you've been able to go online and listen via our website or via iTunes. Um, I was really blessed this week. I heard that somebody who, who was coming to church last week for the very first time, they had never come to Harvest Point, they learned about the series and they listened to all four messages before they ever came to hear last week's message. So uh, that, it's out there for you. Don't forget that. And uh, before I dive into a little, little bit of a recap, um, next weekend, as I said before, we are having a, a complete weekend uh, kind of full of Thanksgiving. I'm going to talk to you about what it really means to count your blessings to learn contentedness and to really be thankful. But before uh, we get there, let me just uh, wish you a happy, happy Thanksgiving. I, I, I pray that it is a blessed and safe time for you and your family. I pray that it is more than a holiday. I pray it is a holy day for you and your family. And I wish you the best of all Thanksgivings. Next Sunday, we'll also decorate the church for Christmas after it's all over. Uh, we serve pizza to anybody and everybody who will stay. And we, fe- we have lunch. We put on Christmas music. That's always a lot of fun. And this is our very first year to decorate our new home. So this year is very important that we, uh, that we really uh, have a lot of fun decorating. So we've got some folks who are kind of the elves working behind the scenes. I hope that you'll hang out next Sunday after church. Have some pizza with us. Enjoy the Christmas season as we, begin, as we dive into it and help us decorate our church for Christmas. Well, on week one, if you remember back, if you've been with me for the whole series, on week one, we, as we answered the question of, is there hope for America, I challenge you to think about who Jesus said a Christ follower's enemy is. And one of the, one of the challenges we have in our culture right now is it's real easy to look at uh, the person who differs from you politically or ideologically and think they're my enemy, when the Bible says that we all have a, an enemy who is the chief enemy of our souls who comes to kill still and destroy. And when we look at some of the fabric of America that's coming unraveled right now, you have to go back to the source. And so that's where we began. We began by by reminding ourselves there is a real enemy. He wants to to tear our country down. He wants to divide us. He does not want a city set on a a hill like a shining beacon, especially a Judeo-Christian nation being one of the most successful things on planet Earth. That's where we began. Week number two, We talked about uh, Trojan horses. I reminded you of the Battle of Troy and how they snuck in warriors with what appeared to be a gift. And then once they received the the gift, they thought inside their city, that that big horse in the middle of the night after they'd had their, their time of celebration and partying, the warriors climbed out of the horse and took over the city. And I ask you a very important question that I hope is still haunting you. I ask you, have we allowed things in our country that we have counted as gifts We have thought they were good things for us, but they're actually tearing the fabric of our communities apart. And we we began to talk a little bit about what would would those Trojan horses be? What would be those things that we would say, we thought they were good, but boy, they're undermining the very integrity of who we are, and God is turning his back on us because of it. Week number three, I talked to you about an upside-down kingdom. And if you remember this, we went to Jesus' prayer that he taught his disciples to say, and he taught his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer. And he said, um, you know, pray this way, that, that your kingdom would come, your will would be done. And we confess together that as a country, when a country is very successful, when it experiences the riches and the prosperity that we've experienced, oftentimes it begins to look at itself and give itself credit for it, and it begins to focus on its own kingdom, what we're building, and how good we are. And Jesus was saying, whenever that happens, you've forgotten the real kingdom. The, real, the only kingdom that matters is not a sovereign country on this planet, believe you me. The only kingdom that matters is the eternal kingdom. And we've got to let the eternal kingdom speak to our country and speak to this place that we live. Week number four, just a couple of weeks ago, I talked to you about the politically 
correct mantra that says, hey, suppress your speech, guard your speech. You might offend somebody. You might rub somebody the wrong way. And when you know truth, you're still feeling that fear that you can't really speak out about what truth is or what a biblical worldview looks like or what what real ethics would look like in a world that is just falling away. And I, I challenge you to state the obvious because we live in a culture where we need Christ followers stating the obvious. There's so many things in our culture that, that we need to be pointing at and going, that doesn't even make sense. That doesn't make sense either. Let's state the obvious. Let's speak the truth and speak the truth in love. And then last week, I talked to you about what it really, what it really looks like to, to try to be an ambassador. A, a true ambassador doesn't seek middle ground where they give up the, the resources or the, the ethics of their own country or what their country needs or, or whoever they represent. What an ambassador does is they know their convictions, they know what they, where they stand, and they know who they represent, and they seek common ground, not middle ground. Middle ground is compromise. A common ground is being able to figure out how we can have some shared places that we agree upon, and then from that place, invite Jesus into the conversation so that Jesus would be at the table, having a voice about what he thinks is going on in any one of these issues. Now, today I'm going to talk about even some more issues, but let me remind you why we started this series. We started this series to do a few things. Number one, I wanted to hold the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. Today I'm going to talk about, for example, our Supreme Court, and I'm going to talk about guns. We're going to try to hold a couple of things in one hand, and we're going to hold the Bible in another. And we're going to say, how do these two things speak together? The second thing we're doing is I wanted to equip you to be able to think and to talk with coworkers and children and grandchildren about what you believe and what you know. Uh, because sometimes we just feel so equipped in those moments, they become tense, they become hot, hostile, and we don't really even know what to say. But God has called us to be truth bearers in those places and to, and to reclaim territory for the kingdom of God. And the final thing we're doing is every Sunday we've been praying for America. So at the very end of this service, like we've done every week, we're going to come and we're just going to kind of bow here before God and we're going to pray for our country. You remember what... What the Chronicles says, right? If my people, these are the words of God, who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I'll heal their land. Guys, it's the church. We've got to be the ones who are seeking after God because God gives us a promise. If my people, if God's people will humble themselves, turn from their wicked ways, seek his face, he will come and heal their land. Today I want to dive into some more stuff, but um, and we're gonna. We, I've got to look at that outline. Grab your outline real quickly. There. Have you ever seen me share so much scripture all at one time? Our, our technology guys. When I when I sent them the outline this week, they said, "Are you trying to preach the whole Bible this week? What's going on?" Um, well, I do have. I've been holding one scripture that is that I think is the crux of what this series is about until the very end. So we're gonna read out of Romans today. But before we get there, let me just remind you of some of the things we've figured out during this series. We have figured out that Jesus came into a culture that was trying to force him to be politically correct. It was not cool for Jesus to come say he was king, not when Caesar's here, you know. It was not cool for Jesus to come say uh, a prayer like this, Oh, Father. People didn't call God Father. They didn't. That was a term of endearment. And Jesus was connoting that he was the Son of God. Oh, that wasn't cool. Jesus came into a culture that was trying to force him to not say the things he was doing. And if you remember some of the things we've studied during this, they were the political leaders and the religious leaders of the day, they were always trying to get Jesus on a gotcha. They were after the gotchas. They were, trying to, they were trying to lure him into traps all the time, trying to get him to say things about taxes, about Rome, about Jews. He was trying to get him to say all kinds of things. Jesus came into a culture that was struggling with politically correctness. And by the way, the scripture we're going to read from today, Paul was in that same kind of culture, that same kind of culture. As a matter of fact, in the culture Paul was in, Christians were being persecuted and killed by what they said. It was a challenge to have a voice for Jesus during the years and the, the ministry of Paul. Jesus came saying, you know what? I, I'm not going to bow down to your political correctness. I'm not going to identify with you, Rome. And I'm not going to identify with you, Israel, either. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to identify with the kingdom of God, which is beyond all of that. He said amazing things. For example, in, in John 8, 58, he said, before Abraham was, 
I am. I mean, he was saying, I'm beyond all that. In John 10, he said, I am the way. I am the truth. I'm not a way. I'm not a truth. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus was, he was, he was radical in the way he was confronting his society. And so every week we've been talking about this politically correct culture that has kind of, uh, it's kind of usurped us a little bit, you know, it's grabbed a hold of us. On one of our Wednesday nights here, I was asking the question, when did we get to where we didn't feel like we could talk and just say what was on our minds? And somebody answered me, you know, their answer was, well, it happened during this administration. It happened uh, six and a half years ago. And I said, no, 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 no. It actually was further than that. When did we get, you know, I hope that you maybe identify with me. I feel like there was a moment in my life where it wasn't so hostile. and We could actually dialogue and talk about things. We could talk about our differences of opinion, even on subjects like politics, right, which can kind of get hot, or religion. We could talk. And, and there was a civil discourse. But somewhere along the, along the last 20-something years, somewhere along the way, I woke up, and it was like all the locks in the house were changed. I mean, it was like somebody changed all the rules. And I remember when I was a little kid, we used to have a phrase, and, I, and the little phrase we would say is, who died made you king, or who died made you boss? And, I, and sometimes I just want to say that to uh, the folks who, want to challenge us not, or, or to make us be in fear that we don't talk or share because they're trying to change the locks on our culture and they're trying to make new definitions of different things and not really allow us to talk about the very needful things. By the way, in America, we have some very needful things we need to talk about. We need to be able to talk about them. If we don't talk about them, let me tell you, they're already heading the wrong way, and they were spiraling downward, not upward. And so today I'm going to share a scripture with you. I just kind of want to start with a scripture that I've been holding this whole series. It's found in Romans chapter 1. And if I could, I'd read all of Romans 1 and Romans 2 and Romans 3. Because Paul, when he's writing to the, the, the Christians that are within the city of Rome, he's writing to people who are living, listen, the context They are living in a culture where they just are like, man, this is as pagan as it gets. This is as hostile towards Christians as it gets. My life is on the line. It was a terrible, terrible place. But you know, the light of the gospel, the only hope inside the city to save the city, were the Christians. And so Paul wrote to the Christians, and he was writing to them to give them a perspective of their culture and to try to get them to challenge them to be lights, to be to be uh, beacons of hope, to be mouthpieces into a culture that greatly needed the gospel. Let me just pause for a minute and say, before I even read this scripture, you may not know this, but Romans chapter 1 through 3 are pretty famous. I can't read all that passage today, but you might want to go home and read just Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, and Romans chapter 3. Martin Luther, you remember the guy who started the Protestant Reformation? Martin Luther. Did you know Martin Luther was saved? He was saved and became a Christ follower when he was sitting in a church service and they read Romans 1, Romans 2, and by the time they got to Romans 3, Martin Luther gave his life to Christ. Have you ever heard the name John Wesley? You know that guy who started the Methodist church? Did you know John Wesley? He says the closest thing he ever had to a conversion experience, his heart was strangely warmed, was when he was in a church and they were reading Romans 1, Romans 2, and Romans 3 at, at Aldersgate, and he said, my heart was strangely warmed when he read what I'm about to read to you. Listen, it's sobering, but it gives us a clear picture of what we need to hear right now in America. Romans chapter 1, and by the way, if it's okay, it's a long scripture, I normally don't read this long, stay with me, okay? Don't fall asleep, all right? Don't unplug. I'm going to hit a few pause buttons. I'm going to kind of give you a little bit of explanation there. So Romans chapter 1, I'm going to pick it up in verse 16. These are the words of Paul. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. By the way, if I had my pen, I'd I'd underline the word everyone. The power of God for everyone, not some. The gospel has the power to save everyone. And Paul said, we cannot be ashamed of the gospel. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith 
from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now listen to Paul's words. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodlessness and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The other night I was talking to somebody. She's an she's a EMT, and she said whenever she's at her job uh, helping people, transporting them when they're hurting, I asked her, I said, do you ever pray for people? She said, I do when I feel like I can. She said, but, and she searched for the word. She said, I, but there is a force sometimes. It just feels like it suppresses me. It suppresses me from wanting to share my faith or being able to pray over somebody. Did you read that word? It says there are people, there are forces that suppress the truth by their wickedness. And we, have, we live in a culture that suppresses us from sharing our biblical worldview, from sharing our evangelical faith in the gospel. Since what, we may be, what, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature, they have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. We're going to come back to that in a minute, but did you read that? Paul says that even if you've never heard the gospel of Christ, you can see the power of God all around us just in looking at his creation. You can see the divine nature of God and his power if you've never even heard the name Jesus or Yahweh. You can see it. We'll come back to that. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. And because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations uh, for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men who abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. And men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They even invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. What Paul is pointing to here in just the first chapter of Romans is that, and we're going to break this down this morning, but is that people people can become so warped. The human heart and the, and the human mind can be some, become so warped that it, thinks it is wise, that it thinks it is smart, but yet it is choosing to do the very things that are against the will of God. And what does God do? The best I can read it, when when that happens and they choose, and they choose willfully, knowing what is right and and what is good, and they choose the wrong, God God will let them go. God will let them go, and he will let them go because our God is a free will God. He wants our best, but he will let us choose a path, even a path of destruction of our own lives. Now, follow me here, because now he's about to talk to God's people. Because sometimes it's very easy for Christians to look at folks like that and go, well, then to hell with you. I don't want to have nothing to do with you. And Paul's going to say, hey, listen, you better guard yourself. Watch this, Romans chapter 2. You, therefore, I think he's talking to me. Maybe he's talking to you. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, 
you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the very same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet you do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and His patience? Listen to this. Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath, there will be anger, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now listen to this inside these parenthetical remarks. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, meaning the Mosaic law, the commands of God, how to live a right life, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they don't murder, they don't kill, they don't steal, they don't even know better, but they don't do those things. They are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place in the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Remember what that word gospel means. Good news. As my good news declares. Hey, flip that outline over for a minute. Let me just share a few thoughts as we kind of close down this series together. We've, we've covered a lot of ground. But this morning, I, I, I want to, uh, this final week, I want to draw down to what I think is one of the core things we've got to grab here in America if we're going to see this thing turn around for ourselves. And the first thing that I would get you to write down, as best I can understand from the teachings of Jesus and from what Paul just wrote there, write this down if you will. The best I can understand it is this. Number one, there is a God-given moral compass that is built into the DNA of every person. No matter where they live, no matter what continent, what country they live in, no matter what their background is, what their home life is, there is a God-given moral code, a moral compass in every person that is in the DNA of who we are. He said it in Romans right there. He said, even if if you've never heard the good news, the very invisible qualities of God are all around us. They're in the very world. We can see his power. We can see that the creation, he is a good God. We can see who he is even there. Even those who don't know the truth, even those who've never heard, there is a God-given moral compass in every person. I want you to think for a minute about your own moral compass. I remember as a little child, can I just talk to you about moral? I had a moral compass long before I ever knew Jesus. I lived in a home that used a lot of four-letter words, you know, and they weren't words like good, you know. They were words like things I can't say, you know, and I lived in a home that had a lot of four-letter words flying everywhere. So as a little boy, guess what I learned? I learned how to say four-letter, five-letter, and six-letter words very good that I know I shouldn't say. You know, there's a moral compass inside of me that said this is wrong, this is wrong, this isn't right. I remember struggling once I adopted those things and got those things habitually into my mind and into my heart and coming out of my mouth. I remember habitually struggling to stop those words from coming out of me because I knew this is not right. And that actually was one of the things that led me to begin to have my first conversations. I call them off-the-record conversations with Jesus. I had some off-the-record conversations with Jesus asking for help. How about your moral compass? 
think for a minute about when you first did something wrong or you knew something that you were doing wasn't right and you knew, nobody had to tell you. You just knew in and of yourself. Guys, there is a God-given moral compass in every person who's ever walked on our planet. This is the way God designs us, and it's right there in Romans. It tells us that way. Even the Gentiles, when they do what's right, and they're, 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 they have that compass of saying, that's a good, that's a right thing. When they do what's wrong, he was saying, even if they've never heard the gospel of Jesus, there's something in there. This is wrong. This is not right. Even if they've never heard the Mosaic law, there's a God-given moral compass in every person. Write this one down. The PC culture, the, the, the politically correct culture that we are in right now, is inviting us to disregard the moral compass that is within us, built in us, by the Creator. And one of the things we're struggling with in America right now is we've got a lot of people living inside our country and their moral compass is broken. Or better said, they are disregarding the very moral compass that God put inside of them of what is good and what is right. And the PC culture says, hey, listen, disregard that. Don't worry about it. You know, my dad was not a Christian. I grew up in a home with a mom who took me to church. My dad didn't go to church. Matter of fact, I don't think my dad got church. And, and for the most part, the, most, the only church my daddy ever got was sitting around the, the kitchen table after we got home from church and we got, went and picked up some chicken and we talked about what the preacher had to say. You know, that was the, that was the church my dad got. My dad, thankfully, became a Christ follower right, when, right before he, he died, when he was 52 years of age with cancer. But can I just tell you something? My dad was a man of good common sense. And he would teach me all the time what ought to be common sense. That's just com- that's good. That's right. I had a good father. I had a morally correct father who didn't yet trust in Jesus, but his moral compass inside of him worked. And you know what he did for me? One of the greatest gifts my, ever, my dad ever gave to me, he taught me, even though he wasn't a, a Jesus follower or a Christ follower, he taught me that I had a moral compass. He taught me that I could know what was right and wrong. He was never, ever encouraging me to disregard my own conscience, my own heart, my own gut. You know what I mean? My own moral compass. But we live in a culture right now that says, hey, listen, disregard that. Don't worry about that. And then write this one down, point number three. Um, If we lose our moral compass... We lose our common sense. If we lose our moral compass, if we disregard it, we lose the very thing that we would, my dad would call common sense because God put something inside of us that would tell us what common sense was all about. Now, you know, like I know, there's a lot of things going on in our world right now. We look at it and we go, that doesn't even make sense. That doesn't, look over there. That doesn't make, it make sense that our national debt's going. We're just going to keep on borrowing money, right? Uh, really? I mean, we don't run our houses like this. How are we going to run our nation like this? Does that make any sense? There's some things that we just look at right now that don't make any sense. But what happens is the PC culture says, oh, just don't worry about that. Disregard that thing inside of you that's saying that this is not the right way to go. Disregard that. Don't pay attention to that. And here's what you need to know. Whenever you disregard your moral compass or whenever your moral compass gets broken what goes with it, it's tandem, it's, it's hand in hand, goes your common sense, all right? What makes sense. And by the way, you might want to write this down somewhere. Common sense is only common when your moral compass is working. Common sense, all of us, we ought to all have common sense, shouldn't we? We call that common sense. Common sense is only common everywhere common when your moral compass is working. Man, what America needs right now is we need people with strong, moral, God-given compasses to say, this is right, this is wrong. This makes sense. This is silly, might I say, stupid. This is the way to go. This, if we choose this path, it will lead us to ruin. We need people to have common sense. Don't you wish your politicians had common sense? I mean, seriously, don't you? Don't you wish they weren't worried about poll numbers and getting reelected? By the way, I was talking to somebody this week. (laughs) How about something as simple as term limits? Can we all agree term limits probably be a good thing for us here in America? Guess who's got to vote on term limits to approve it? 
Congress, right? They got to vote on their own term limits to approve. That's crazy, isn't it? At some point, some president, somebody's got to stand forward and say, hey, a common sense thing here is we, if we're ever going to reclaim common sense inside our politicians, we've got to get our moral compass working again. Not about what's going to get us elected, not about money, not about our benefits, not about us staying in office. You know what? What's right, what's wrong, your common sense goes out the window when you lose your moral compass. Now, here's why. Write this down. Number four, the PC culture. The politically correct culture invites you and me, challenges you and me, invites us to look, out, look inward to discover truth. Well, look inside yourself, whatever feels good for you, whatever you think. What did, what did you think about this? What do you think about that? What do you feel? It invites us to look in, inward, inside us, to discover truth. While the Christian message, while the gospel of Jesus, while the Bible, while Jesus himself in, tells us that in order to find truth, You've really got to look outside of you to ultimate truth, which is embodied in him. Truth is embodied in Jesus. Said differently, there really is no truth and wisdom in you and me, except for that little thing that God put inside of us that's of God, right? By ourselves, the Bible says, hey, we're, we'll always choose wrong. We'll always choose a selfish route. We'll always choose to self-destruct. But truth and wisdom is found in God. Somebody said it this way to me not long ago, and I just, it caught me. Truth has a name. Do you know the name? Truth has a name, and his name is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And so what happens, and I'm setting all this up because I'm going to look at a couple of things that we're facing right now, but you've got to understand what's going on in America. If the moral compass is broken and the common sense has gone out the window, and if the PC culture is saying, hey, look inside of you, Bo, whatever you think's truth. If that's the way we're going, listen, let me tell you, we're, we're, we're the, the top's spinning and it's going into a bad place. Lastly, when the compass breaks, when the common sense goes out the window and common sense is no longer common and it's lost, and we end up, this is what happens, we end up with an, a pandemic, a culture filled with moral blindness. People who cannot really know what truth is. They don't study God's word because they don't give adherence to God's word being truth. And they become morally blind. They don't, I mean, I didn't plan on talking about this, but talk about moral blindness, right? Being able to talk about baby parts and selling baby parts. And some people saying, that's okay. This is crazy stuff. And everybody in this room probably would say, this is crazy stuff. Why? Why are some people okay with it? Why are some people justifying it? Is it really just all about the Benjamin? Is it all about the dollars they think they can make off the little baby parts? Listen, at the core of it, it's about a lot more than that. When the moral compass is broken, when common sense goes out the window, moral blindness happens in a culture. And right now we are living in a culture of America that is morally blind. We go back to the age of Red Skelton. We go back to the, the age of 50, 60 years ago. There was a totally different level of understanding of truth and morality and who we were to be as a country than there is today. We are splintered. We are fact, we're, we're fractioned because moral blindness is pervading our society. A couple of cases in point. Our Supreme Court. The people we put in place to be the Supreme Court of the land. These are the justices, these are the judges who, by their decisions, we think these are some of the smartest people inside our borders. And we put people in place, by the way, into political positions, politically nominated positions. We put them in place, and they become, you know it, politically activated. They, they, it's not about truth anymore. It's not really about what's right it's about them towing a certain line of who put them in, and then they're going to follow that ideology right down the line. Guys, you remember what God said in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2? Those who might seem like the smartest people, they become fools. Did you read that? Why? Because even those people that appear to be the smartest people, if their moral compass is broken, they don't have common sense anymore. The very sense that is common to all of us. They don't have that anymore. And they become morally blind, and they begin to make decisions that for us 
make no decision, that make no sense at all, right? Let me talk for a minute about another thing that, that I haven't, I don't think I've really addressed the whole time we've been in this series, but let's talk about school violence for a minute. Or, or we could talk about movie theater violence, right? We're seeing things happen right now on a scale over the last 10 years that I don't think we've ever seen happen in America. Uh, kids walking into schools, killing their own classmates. People who, have, uh, who are walking into theaters uh, thinking that they're playing a certain persona and just shooting up the movie theater. Now, notice a couple of things that can be insanity on either one of these equations. Gun advocates, some gun advocates, they, they get all bent out of shape by those who would say, you know what, if you're going to apply for a gun, there needs to be a certain amount of time before you get that gun. We need to check your background. There needs to be a waiting period. Some gun activists, gonna, I don't know, they get all bent out of shape. They want the gun right then. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? In a culture like ours, as large as ours, doesn't it make sense to just wait a few days for somebody to do a criminal background check on you, make sure that you're okay to have a gun? Now, this week I was in Lowe's shopping for a dishwasher and an oven for my wife, and I can't buy it that day and get it sent to my house that day. If I have to wait for an oven and a dishwasher, don't you think, doesn't the common sense, moral compass, doesn't it make sense I ought to, if I'm going to apply for a gun, I ought to have to wait for a gun a few days, let them thoroughly vet me, check me out? Now, I, I just think this makes sense, right? I think you probably agree with me. But some gun activists, oh, that's insanity. I ought to be able to have it right now. Freedom, freedom, freedom. Right, okay, hush your mouth for a minute. Let's just talk about the truth, okay? That's, that's, that's kind of insanity. You ought to actually understand we've got to make sure that we're going to be putting guns in the hands of people who've not done violent crimes, who've not done terrible things, people who are not been checked, you know, just gotten checked out of a psych ward, you know, we got to check that. But let's flip to the other side. Talk about the insanity on the other side. There are some people who are, who are trying to get rid of all the guns, and they're looking at the violence, and they're just going, guns? Guns are the ter- most terrible thing in the world. We got to get rid of all the guns. Take the guns away. Now, that doesn't make, that, that's, that's kind of insane as well, right? I mean, think about it. Scientifically, that doesn't even make sense. Here's how I know that. When I'm, I'm, I'm a dad and I've sent my children to school with their science experiments, and one of the things I've learned, just like when I was a kid doing science experiments, is when you do an experiment, what you often do in an experiment is you insert new variables to see how the thing changes, right? What has changed in America? A hundred years ago, did America have guns? Did, did people walk into our schools and shoot up our schools and did they walk into grocery stores or did they just, no. Okay, people had guns. That variable has not changed. People still have guns. It must be something else. Well, Stephen, you know what it is. It's mental health. We're not taking care of the, 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 the people in our, in, our, in, our, in our country who are struggling with mental health and, and they're the ones, it's, it's our problem. We've got to do greater with our mental health. Let me ask you, a hundred years ago, did America have people struggling with mental health issues? Absolutely. And I'm not saying we don't have to do very good towards those who are struggling with mental health issues, but don't throw that variable into the science equation. It makes no sense. Scientifically, it makes no sense. Don't throw that in the equation and say, oh, it's, it's the people with mental health. Here's where I'm driving. Listen carefully. If we're going to see America come back, we've got to have some honest conversations. And we've got to get back to the real moral compass of truth. Some people would go, I don't, I, don't, I don't know we can have an honest conversation. You and I disagree about truth. The atheist would say, we can't have that conversation. You know, another person, politically correct person, would say, well, you might offend somebody. You might rub somebody the wrong way. What I'm telling you here today, church, listen. If America is going to be, become again the city on a shining hill, and if our best days, listen, if our best days are actually before us, the only way we're going to get there is we've got to have some truthful conversations. We've got to have some truthful conversations. And we've got to be able to talk. Okay? What's the answer to the question on the gun, Stephen? Tell me. Well, I read Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. And best I can tell, it tells me that when you disregard your moral compass that God put inside of you, you will choose to do 
destructive things, not only in your life, but in other people's lives. And you know, when a young man walks into a movie theater and he unloads an automatic weapon on anybody there, he's already decided for him his life doesn't count. And so if his life doesn't count, your life doesn't count either, right? Light bulb. The moral compass inside that young man is broken. The common sense has left the room. There is moral blindness in that young man as he walks into that place. Now, Stephen, what's the good news here? Listen, this is kind of a heavy message, isn't it? Notice your outline there real quickly. Would you just fill in a point right behind number five? Here's the good news of Jesus Christ. Write this down. I didn't give you two words. I gave you a whole sentence. Write it down. Jesus healed the blind back 2,000 years ago, and he can still do it today. Hallelujah, right? Do you believe that? Jesus healed the blind 2,000 years ago, and I believe Jesus is still in the business today to heal the blind. And if we have people in our culture, and we got a lot of them, who are morally blind, whose moral compasses are broken, and whose their common sense has just left the building, if Jesus, if we can just get Jesus to come and bring healing to our land, now, now we've got a culture that can turn back towards truth. Truth. Tom, would you put that question up there? I titled this series, Is There Hope for America? And every Sunday I've answered that question the exact same way. Say, say with me real quickly the answer to that question. Is there hope for America? Yes, there is hope for America. There is a hope that we have a Savior. Listen carefully. We have a Savior. Who can, who can restore sight to the morally blind. My mind goes back to Jesus doing his miracles, and he'd come upon a person who was blind, and he, many times he'd do it different ways. I mean, one time he spat on the ground, he made some mud, and he put it on their eyes. And another time, he just touched their eyes. And Jesus would, would heal the blind, but there had to be an interaction with Jesus for that healing to come. Guys, we need We need to live in a culture where those who are morally blind are hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. The truth won't be found inside of you. If your moral compass is broken, you don't just get to fix it yourself. Guess what? The one, the creative one, the eternal one, he can actually come back and put a new compass inside of you. He can fix your broken moral compass. He can restore common sense to you if you'll just let the healing one touch you. I was thinking about a person who was blind, who met Jesus. Would you just, would you put on your spiritual imagination with me for a minute? <laughs> Can you imagine what happened in the life of a person who was blind and met Jesus? They probably didn't have a lot of hope. They probably given up hope a long time ago. But they met Jesus and all of a sudden hope was restored. You know, I bet a blind person, I've never been blind, but I bet a blind person lives a lot in fear. They can't see what you and I can see. They live in a world of darkness. And can you imagine how a person, any one of those blind people that met Jesus might be a person that was filled with fear, and all of a sudden he opened up their eyesight, and fear was banished in their world, and they had courage to face tomorrow? Can you imagine how they heard the voice of Jesus, they felt the touch of Jesus, and their life was changed? See, I have hope for America. And my hope is that the very one who touched the eyes of the blind can still touch our culture. And we use this word all the time. This, 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 it's a kind of banner word here in the United States of America. It's the word freedom. Freedom. Just go back to that blind person. How much freedom does a blind person have when they're bound up with no sight? Jesus comes along and he touches the blind person. For the first time, they can experience freedom in a way they never have. And you know, the essence of what I've been talking about for the last six weeks, that's the heart of it. We need to experience ultimate freedom here. It's a spiritual freedom that can only be given by the Savior of the world. But it means, it means humbling ourselves and saying, God, somewhere along the way, somebody changed the locks. We can't even talk anymore. We're going to start talking. We're going to talk in our family. We're going to talk in our church. We're going to talk in our workplaces. 
We're going to start talking. Somehow, Jesus, we're going to see you begin to fix the moral compass of America. Dream with me for a minute, guys. What would it look like for this wonderful country of ours to have the moral compass restored? You know, I prepped so much for this sermon series, there's lots of stuff I didn't even get to share with you. I found videos that I just sat in my own office in my own private time and watched these videos and found myself crying when I watched a president sending his troops off into war praying over our country over the radio. And I thought, God, why is it that our president doesn't even pray over our country anymore? Why is it that we don't have that? We need to see the moral compass of America restored. And this morning, as I'm inviting you to come and bow a bended knee and pray over our country, it couldn't be clear what I'm praying for this morning. We need prophetic voices of Christ followers to point to the truth and to speak the obvious and speak the truth. Listen. Listen, those of you who are young, younger than me, I consider that kind of young. Zoe, you're young. Rachel, you're young. Guys, y'all are, y'all are growing up in a world that's a lot different from the world I even grew up in, much less from some of these guys who are older than me. Your friends, they might act like they got it all together, but you might be their only shot at having a moral compass put back together. So you got to live like Jesus in front of them. And you got to point to Jesus. This morning as you come, I just want you to pray over America, guys. I want you to pray that God would help your moral compass be strong, give you good common sense. I want, to pray for, I want you to pray for your family, but then I want you to pray for America, that God would just put a covering over our nation, that God's face would turn back to us. And that what we read in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2, that he was giving them over and giving them over to this and this and depravity and greed and lust, that God would say, okay, I will, I will stop that. I will turn that back if you will just come back to me. Our altar's open, guys. This last week, before we move into Thanksgiving, let's take time to hold our country up before God. Would you come and let's just pray for our land, pray for healing over our land. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will heal their land. And as you come, just like in weeks past, I'm just going to give, I'm just going to kind of be quiet for a little while and ask you to pray for your country. You, you touch the Holy Spirit. You pray and ask for that God to fix that moral compass, and then I'll close this in prayer. As I get ready to pray over and with you, I just want you to hear these words from Scripture one more time. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Lord, we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We think it is the hope of the world for our broken and fallen world. We so need the gospel of Jesus to come. And Lord, I'm reminded of the blind beggar who cried out and the, and the disciples tried to get them, him to stop crying. And he, he said, I will not let my healing pass up. Lord, you, you had a moment with him. You brought healing to his eyesight. We pray for our country. We, we've seen so much silliness and what would seem like insanity happening. It makes no sense. But Lord, it's because our moral compass has been broken and we so need you. 
We need you to come back and restore that which you, you put inside us from the beginning. And Lord, we pray that over our president. We pray that over our politicians. We pray that over our governor. Lord, we pray that over our religious leaders. We, we pray that over our nation top to bottom, Lord, that you would bring us back. You'd bring us back. And Lord, we pray for the church, for Christ followers. Oh, Lord, give us boldness. Give us boldness. Not let, ne- never let there be fear, Lord. And never let there be shame in who you are and what you've done in our lives. Give us boldness like never before. And Lord, I pray that, that word, those words of the Apostle Paul who stood as a shining light and called others to stand with him, Lord, I pray that would be over us. That we would say, for me, God, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For I know, within my soul I know, it is the power unto God for salvation for everyone who would believe. And Lord, we are claiming today no, they, the, the, the polis and the politicians and the, the people who are scientists, they say, oh, the days of a Christian America are gone. And, and America is a post-Christian nation. Lord, we are reclaiming ground. We are reclaiming ground for our country. We are believing that our country will be a nation that is founded upon you, Jesus. That those who left the boats long ago, those forefathers that started a revolution because they wanted freedom to worship and they wanted to follow your path, that that's our path. They're our ancestors. There are great grandmas and granddaddies. And we are going to claim that ground that it is still our path today. And Lord, we pray that you would bless our country. Bless our country through your presence. Bless our country through your, your intervention. Bless our country through your change and your redemption. Lord, pray, bless our country even as we come in repentance today for how we have failed you. Lord, we know there's hope because you're here with us. You are inside of us. You are our moral compass. Let your truth come out of our mouth. Let your truth be known in our church. Let your truth be known in our families. This is our prayer, Jesus. Lord, I close this series today by remembering your word. Your word says that if we will lift you high, you will draw all people unto yourselves. Lord, I pray for every person who's been with us on this journey, that in our homes and our places of work, that you would help us to lift you high and that we would trust your promise. You will draw all people to yourselves. I pray this in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, as you're you're going back to your seat this morning, I just wanted to, I asked Chris, remember that song we sang earlier? That song that said, if I ever needed you, I need you now. I said, Chris, can you come back and let let us just kind of sing that song as kind of an anthem to close out this series? We need you now. So if you will, just just stand to your feet, if you will. We're going to sing that that little chorus there. And I want to make it our prayer as we close out this series. Oh, living water. Oh, God, our Father. If I ever needed you, I need you now. Would you sing this with me?